it is interesting to me that um, after almost 50 years of legal abortion in the United States, there's, there's this weird trying to figure out how to describe it. I didn't write this down. There's this weird division all of a sudden taking place. There have been people protesting abortion and opposing abortion since before Roe v. Wade was ever passed. Um, When when Linda and I were still in California, I think before I'd even started uh, seminary, uh, Operation Rescue was going on and they were uh, going and, and protesting, and, and there's a whole history of, of protests at abortion clinics, and sometimes quiet protests of prayer, and sometimes kind of ugly protests. I mean, there's 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 been the whole thing. It's really interesting to me that that there's two extremes that are now stepping up. The one extreme is states like New York and, and others that are approving abortion now virtually at the, at the moment of birth, that they would almost consider. In fact, I think some of them mentally do consider that as long as the umbilical cord is still attached, it's not a baby and it can be killed without any recourse. And it's, it's getting worse to the point where now we've got some politicians saying life shouldn't be granted or personhood shouldn't be granted until a year or six months or a month. Um, And at the same time, there's a move toward uh, pro-life, anti-abortion like never before. It's not a handful of extremists who are yelling at abortion clinics or quietly praying or people who are getting arrested. It's this groundswell of, no, this is wrong, this is murder, this must stop. And so it's really kind of coming to a head. I think that the United States right now is very much like the United States in the 1850s where slavery advocates were really doubling down and anti-slavery people were no longer the oddballs off in the corner, but those who, who simply believed slavery was wrong. And now these voices can't be silenced anymore. It's unthinkable that 10 years ago, Focus on the Family or anybody could have ever done this kind of an event in New York City. And, and I love the fact that they're doing it in New York City because New York's abortion laws are, are evil in the extreme. Let's, let's turn to the Word. If you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read the first 18 verses. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would not they have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I have come to do your will, O God. After saying, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, we come this morning to come to your word, to gather together and to be taught and to be nourished. We ask that you would have mercy on our fragility, have mercy on our weakness. Focus our minds now on your good word. Strengthen us in our faith, shape us, and feed us as you have promised to do. And we ask all of this believing that you you will do this for us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, by this point in Hebrews 10, we know that the book of Hebrews is written to Jews who are wavering on their commitment to Jesus Christ for various reasons. Some because of genuine doubts, some because uh, the church doesn't offer their traditions and they miss their traditions, some because of persecution. Um, this morning I want to focus on on what, what these verses deal with in terms of forgiveness and sanctification and justification and how those things work for us. Now, I, I know we've been in Hebrews a long time. We've been in Hebrews about 40 weeks. It's, it's been a long time. And we're really coming to the end this morning with these verses on the doctrinal aspect of of what the book of Hebrews says. Starting in verse 19, we are going to be getting into the the applicational part of Hebrews. Now what do we do in terms of this? When we get to Hebrews 11, we're going to see a huge aspect is our faith in Jesus Christ and our faith in what God has done. And and we are going to take our time going through Hebrews 11 because we're going to look at those people. We're going to look at their lives according to Scripture. And see what the Lord did there. And so as this argument within the book of Hebrews comes to a close about the supremacy of Christ, the writer, who I think is probably Paul, 
really comes down to the, to the summary of everything that he said before. What's the difference between what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers and the law of, of God in Judaism offers? And the reason that matters today is that so many religions, even Christian sects today, would, would have an Old Testament approach where the only way to be saved is to continue a series of steps and sacrifices and sacraments and baptisms and going forward. I, I, read, I read just this last week about a man who has been a Baptist all his life, and he said, I've, I've been saved dozens of times. Well, you're not saved dozens of times. But see, what, ha- what would happen is he would commit his life to Christ. He'd have this emotional experience, and that would last a few weeks or a couple of months, and then he would do something big and feel that he lost it. And so at the next church service, when they gave the altar call, he would go forward to get saved again. Well, he's living under an Old Testament law. And we all know people who do that, and we do that too. And so this morning I, I want to talk about this, this uh, temporary nature of the Old Testament and the permanent nature of what Jesus did. And that's the focus that we're going to have. Now in order to do this, let me just give you a little bit of a reminder about the, the law of God. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus says that the law of God, the law of Moses, the old covenant is the highest, best, most perfect law there is. He doesn't say the law is is a wreck. Why would anybody ever follow this? You need to get rid of it. Jesus says the law is so perfect, it is so right, that I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. And in fact, if you set yourself about destroying the law, you're really demonstrating that you're least in the kingdom of heaven. No other law ever revealed the holiness and nature of God in such perfection. And the truth is that only those with a high regard for the law of God can be saved. And that's because the law of God tells us that we're sinners. And if we don't believe that, we won't repent. If we don't believe we're sinners and that our actions are sinful, we won't seek a savior. And those who say, no, we can get rid of the law, we can throw it out, we can live without the law of God, then have no reason to seek a savior. But at the same time, and here's where the biblical gospel differs from what so many people think, at the same time, we can't earn salvation by keeping the law. It's not just that, we, that we're not able to, but we're not able to. We're not able to keep the law. It's not just that we're not able to, it's that the law can't do that. Even if you could keep the law perfectly, it would not save you. Romans 3.20 says, Nobody is justified by the keeping of the law. The law was given to identify sin, not to take sin away. So the law of God is the highest law ever given, but it's incapable of saving 
anyone. And if the Old Testament law of God can't save, then there's no hope of salvation that comes through any other law. Baptist law, Buddhist law, Mormon law, Methodist law, it doesn't matter. No other law can save if the law of God can't save. The other thing we need to understand about the law of God is that it's never satisfied. It's never satisfied. We see that in these opening verses. These sacrifices in verse 1, which they offer continually, year by year. In these sacrifices, verse 3 says, there is a reminder of sins year by year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. The law is always hungry. The law is never satisfied. You kept the law today. You observed the law today. You you didn't commit this sin. You did these good things. It's not enough for the law. The law is still hungry. The law is never satisfied until you die. Now, this is why David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, as he confesses his sin with Bathsheba, he says in his prayer in Psalm 51 to God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. You know, David wasn't a Christian. Jesus wouldn't be born for a thousand years. There was no gospel. There was no contemplation of, of, this, of, of God the Son becoming, uh, the, the, becoming a man, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life, dying as a, as a substitute, as a holy, perfect substitute for us, and rising from the dead in victory over sin and the grave so that all who believe in him would be saved by grace through faith. No thought of that. All David had was the law. But see, the law says that there's no forgiveness for intentional sins. If you go look at the the passages in in the Old Testament that deal with with sin offerings and burnt offerings and trespass offerings, it, it keeps saying these are for unintentional sins. David's adultery was not unintentional. He couldn't say it was an accident. He couldn't say I didn't mean it. And so the law offers David no hope. And that's what he says here. God, you don't delight in sacrifice. If you wanted a sacrifice, if you would accept a bull for me, a goat for me, I'd bring it in a heartbeat. But you don't. You don't. Instead, David appeals to the character of God. He says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God. Why? According to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. I went through and counted. There's 19 verses in in Psalm 51. David makes 20 particular petitions. Blot out my, my transgressions. Forgive my sin. Take away my sin. Do not withhold your Holy Spirit from me. Be gracious to me. And none of it based on what David did to satisfy the law. All of it based on the goodness of God, the loving kindness, the mercy of God. So as we see in Hebrews 10, Jesus didn't come to do what had already been done. 
It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5 says, when Jesus came into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. That's coming from Psalm 32, but it sounds like Psalm 51. But you have prepared a body for me. See, what God required from from Jesus was that he fulfill the old covenant by faithfully and perfectly observing it, earning perfect righteousness, and then offering up his own body in our place as a substitute on the cross. He didn't simply cover sin. He took it away completely. So Hebrews 10.10 says, By the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus offered a single sacrifice for sins, his own body. He didn't offer it repeatedly. He didn't offer himself, rise from the dead and turn around again and do what all the other priests had always done and offer it again. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down, his his atoning work done and his reigning work beginning. The priests never sat down because their work was never done. Now, what does this have to do with with you and I? We are born in Adam, so we are born guilty. We have all committed our own acts of sin. We have all violated our conscience. We have violated the law of God. We live in a guilty world. We deal with guilt and our own shame all the time. What does God say? Much of the world will tell you, God says, try harder, do better, offer these gifts. You need to give money. You need to go to church every day. You need to do this. You need to do that. And there's, there's no need to, to beat up on Roman Catholics or Mormons or Lutherans or Baptists or, or non-denominational Christians because it happens everywhere. Atheists do this. Atheists are the people in the world most who, who, would, who have the most reason to say, forget you, I'm doing what I want, I'm living for all that I can get because when I'm gone, I'm gone, so I might as well enjoy it, and who cares about you? But so many atheists are people of conscience saying, we've got to do the right thing. They just don't know why. They do that because there's a knowledge of God within them. And they're driven to a morality that they can't explain. What do we do then when we're faced with our own sin? Do we fall back into the pattern of law-keeping and sacrifice, or do we trust in Jesus Christ? There's a, a Latin phrase that came out of the Reformation, simul justus et peccator. It means, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. Righteous and a sinner. Just and sinful. At the same time, at the same moment of time. Christians are righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus earned perfect righteousness by his faithful obedience. And then God credits me as a believer in Christ with the full righteousness of Christ. He credits you as a believer in Christ with the full righteousness of Christ. As though you had lived that life. You get credit for that. And we are sinners because we continue to sin. We're sinners because we continue to live in the flesh, because we're still vulnerable to temptation, and we're still prone to weakness. So the righteousness here, the Eustace side, the just side, is Christ's righteousness granted to you by grace through faith. The sin is yours. 
But just as your but just as Jesus' righteousness was credited to you, your sin was credited to him on the cross. And he bore the penalty you should have borne. And that's why it says that Jesus Christ, in verse 14, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I really want you to think about this. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has brought to a perfect point of righteousness and perfection those who are in the process of being made righteous and perfect. I'm not seeing the light come on. I don't want to keep repeating it until you're sick of me. But there's, there's, it seems like a paradox. It seems like a contradiction. He has perfected you, and you are being sanctified. Why would you need to be sanctified if you've been perfected? Simul Eustace at peccator. You have the righteousness of Christ credited to you. You're not just covered with it like the blood of bulls and goats covered sin. This has actually been credited to your account as though you lived this life. But at the same time, you're not living that life. And so we see this this interesting thing. He has perfected his people. It's an accomplished work. It's a finished work. His priestly work made an end to sin and judgment. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And at the same time, we are being sanctified because we are not yet like him. It's an ongoing process, a work of the Holy Spirit that is carried out every day in our lives. And this is our hope. This is our hope. You see, if if we were simply declared righteous in Christ and there was no ongoing work of sanctification taking place by the Holy Spirit, then we would have a misshapen, crippled idea of what it means to be holy and what it means to be like Christ. We would be proud and arrogant people thinking that in our sinful behavior and conduct, we're just fine. But on the other hand, if we were not declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit was simply sanctifying us over time, we would quickly despair. We would say, oh, my God, how far I have to go. I'm not making any progress. I feel like I'm further from the, from the finish line than I was when I started. I can't do this. I can't see this ever being complete in me. I can't imagine a day when I'm free of temptation. I can't imagine a day when every thought of my, of, of my head and every affection in my heart is identical to Christ. And we would be hopeless. So what he does is he perfects us at a point in time, and then he is now on a daily basis, moment by moment, sanctifying us. And, and we've got this perfect blend we have been perfected declared righteous credited with jesus life and righteousness and the holy spirit is constantly lovingly gently patiently insistently faithfully transforming us sanctifying us purifying us modifying us so that we become more and more like Jesus and he will bring it to a perfect conclusion because the conclusion has already been declared. How far will you get in your life in Christ? You'll get to Christ. 
How do I know that? Because you've already been declared to be like him. And that's been credited to you as though you were always like him. And the Holy Spirit is bringing you to that point. We don't need to despair of our need to grow. And we have no basis to be proud of our righteousness. So today we are uh, simul eustus et peccator, but the day is coming when we will be solus eustus, only righteous. And the peccator part will be gone. How does the Spirit do this? Excuse me, very quickly at the end. In verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How does the Spirit of God do this? He doesn't change our behavior. He changes our hearts and our minds. He grants us different affections. He grants us different thinking. Jesus says this in the Gospel of Luke. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. All we can do with each other is change behavior. It's what we do with our kids. We change behavior. People are, people are always saying, you've got to get through to the heart. You've got to change their heart. Give it up, parents. You can't do it. We just correct the behavior. We just correct the behavior. And we hope that as we correct the behavior, that they, they learn to bring their hearts and minds along with us. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come in and simply correct our behavior. The Holy Spirit changes us by giving us new affections, teaches us new ways of thinking, and those new affections and new ways of thinking work themselves out in our actions. That's the reason why virtually every New Testament letter begins with a, a doctrinal section like Ephesians 1 through 3 and ends with an applicational section like Ephesians 4 through 6. We have to know the truth and believe the truth so that we can then live according to the truth. I had a guy at our first church say to me, and I I typically preach about 30 minutes or 35 minutes. I was a 50-minute man back in that day. And he, he, he came up to me one day and he said, I don't understand. All of that, all of that was simply to say to us, so pray more. Why didn't you just get up and say, pray more, go home? And, and by the mercy of God, I had an answer. Because you're not a pet. Because you're a son. And God wants his sons to know why. He wants you to think. He wants you to engage with the world according to his truth. And then he wants you to make the decision to live according to that truth. But you have to know it first. The truth is, we've, we've all known churches, perhaps we've been in churches, or we've, we've heard of other, other guys. They get up, they read the scripture, and they immediately go to, so this is what you need to do. Why is that a problem? Because it doesn't bear on your mind and your heart. 
You don't come out of church, you don't come out of the teaching time with a promise to say, I'll believe this promise. And because I'll believe this promise, this promise now is changing the way I am. You come out just with, here's a checklist. You come out with a law rather than grace. So as, as we bring this home, Jesus ended the sacrificial system in order to fulfill the will of God. He died once for all time, once and never again, so that all who believe in him would be perfected and sanctified. Let me give you four implications of this. First, uh, our ongoing sanctification is a result of our new life in Christ. You are not being sanctified toward new life. You're being sanctified because you've been given new life. That's why it says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. I don't know about you. I don't know about Midwestern culture. I was raised in California, lived there for 40 years. But if my kids were playing in the front yard with other kids and they got into trouble, I wouldn't spank the other kids. I'd deal with my kids. What that means is that if, if God is not disciplining you, if he's not training you, you don't belong to him. Because he's faithful, and he corrects his children, and he disciplines his children. He does that on a daily basis. Our ongoing sanctification is a result of this new life and relationship we have. Second, this eternal life that we have is more than a promise about what will happen in the future. When we have the promise of salvation and eternal life, it's not just so we can go to heaven when we die. It's so that we can be transformed today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, our part in that is to come to the Word, to read it, to learn it, to trust it, to believe it. And the Holy Spirit does this inner work of transformation. But if that transformation, again, is not happening on a, on a, on a basis that you can measure at times, not always, it's hard to see sometimes. But if it's never happening, you don't belong to him. But third, there's no offering for sin that can satisfy God's wrath. We've seen that. We've seen that the law of God, the Old Testament scriptures, is the most perfect revelation of God and his righteousness and holiness there is. Nothing else even comes close. If, if that law can't take away your sins, no law can take away sins. There's no offering that can satisfy God's wrath. And finally, while we get discouraged that the work of sanctification is not done yet, the fact that it's taking place tells us that it will be done. It tells us that it will be done. As a Christian, you're not climbing the ladder of sanctification to reach the point of justification. You started at the top. You started justified in Christ by grace through faith. It, it's, it's like the, the children of, of Prince William, the son of Prince William in England. He's an heir to the throne. He was an heir to the throne really the moment he was conceived. Certainly the moment he was born and they realized they were having a, a, a boy that kid is in line. He's in a direct line. Elizabeth, Charles, as long as Charles goes, William, 
and then Buster, whatever his name is, Buster. He, he's already there. So what they're going to do with him now is they're going to raise him so that when the time comes, he's prepared. When you were born again in Jesus, you're already at the top. You're already justified, already fully set apart by the Lord. And now the Holy Spirit is working within your life so that when, when Jesus returns or when you die and you, you stand before him, you have been prepared by the Spirit of God. And, and those two events come together perfectly. Will you make it in time? Absolutely. Because it's already been declared by God that you will. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your graciousness to us and your kindness to us. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage us to continue. Encourage us to continue to trust you. To continue to keep our hearts soft and open before you. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is faithful to take advantage of of everything around us, to teach us to trust you, to rely on you, to teach us to to repent of sin and to turn away from sin, to teach us to love one another, to teach us to be like Jesus. We know, Lord, that that work is not yet done. We know that that work is not yet done because we're still in this mortal life. But we also thank you that when you bring it to completion, that completion will be perfect completion. Nothing will be left undone. Because this is your work that you're doing. It's not our work. It's yours. And so we give you thanks today. We worship you today. We rejoice in you today. And encourage us, Lord, to take these words of hope to those who need to hear them, those who don't know you at all, and those who do know you but are are trapped in, in thinking like the law is the way that they must live to please you. We thank you for all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.